could begin. Um, in, le in last week's class, we devoted the entire shir to the umdina of Reb Lezimir Vadun. And of course, this is a uh, tremendous chiddush. He bases his chiddush upon the words that the Gemara says when the Gemara refers to Maim Shenla himself being Asar, which goes against logic and assumption and chazakar and rov, but is a gezerah the Rabbanan because of the chumra veshetish, as the stories the Gemara tells about Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir. So the Gemara doesn't say liolam. On that basis, Rabbi Lezimer Vadun says that why the chachamim didn't say liolam, what it meant was that behold the chachamim have a right to evaluate the circumstances and to reach a conclusion whether or not the person is dead. And a case happened, people were missing, the boat sunk off Verona. We're talking in terms of seven years, one gives us history, but I believe seven years is correct. At least that's what the Ketavyad indicates, that the Ketavyad of the Ra'avya, which has within it the Ketavyad of Reblesimer Vadun. Now, it's a big Chiddush. And um, as those, the Ravya and others who attacked Reb Lezimer Vadun said right away, wherever the Gemara says something is us, the Gemara doesn't say La'olam. And that's why they dismissed Reb Lezimer Vadun. I want to say something I didn't say last week, you see, because here, particularly in the year 2000, we are treading on uh, very interesting ground. Uh, something came out in the uh, class last week in the Rabbi Salavetcher class, Students spoke to me after class, I relate to it tomorrow. But I see what the students spoke about. He was talking in terms of reform and conservative. And right away when you say anything innovative, so the student asked me after class, if that's the, what the Gemara says in Gittin and that's the way you apply it in modern times, where are you different than the reform and conservative? So I want to say something about Reb Lezimer Vadun, something I didn't say last week, but something that I think adds depth to his viewpoint. Um, after all, the Ravya's uh, critique, and after the Ravya, many of the Achronim say it too, many of the Rishonim, and afterwards Achronim. What do you mean? The Gemara didn't say Liolam. Where does the Gemara say Liolam? Gemara says it's Asa, it's Asa. Asa remains Asa. You see, but there's one big difference. Generally speaking, where the Gemara talks about something being Asa, it's obvious that it's Asa Liolam. If you take, for example, Of Bukhalav, once we make a gezerah, of b'chalav, and we accept the gezerah, then there's no way of b'chalav will be mutter. Of b'chalav means, of b'chalav is like basa b'chalav. And basa b'chalav means that it's going to be asli olam. And that's the definition. You follow me, Shmuel? That's the definition. It's obvious. You, 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 don't, need, you don't need anyone, shlomo, I should say. You don't need anyone to, uh, to say to you to qualify it. You'll take, for example, on Shabbat, whatever the Gezerah that you want to refer to is, whether it's Shvut, whether it's Shnaim Sasum Alacha, whatever the Gezerah is, of course it's Asa. There's no way that it can be Mutter for one Shabbat and Asa for the next Shabbat. David, I'm dealing with a question you asked me after class in a different context altogether now, because you asked me something, I'll deal with the way you asked it, I'll deal with it tomorrow, because it led me to Big Chidushim, your question. Here, where you have Maim Shainla himself, what you have is an aguna. And you have an ongoing process. And as time ticks away, the chazaka becomes stronger that the husband is dead. And this is perhaps what Mevilev Zemir meant. 
that here you have something different than of Pachalav, something different than Grama B'Shabbos, something different than Shivanikiyam, something different than any other Isa the Rabbanon you can talk about. Here you have an Isa the Rabbanon which every year that ticks by, the Isa is weakened, the Isa is mitigated, the Chazaka becomes stronger against the Isa. That's what Rebbe Lassim meant. It didn't say Leolam. And those are exactly his words. If it doesn't say Leolam, then it means Bechol Davadata Chachamim can use halachic common sense and see whether or not the man is dead. And when seven years go by, it's a very strong Chazaka that the man is dead if he has not conquered his family. That's the way I would defend and explain Rebbe Lassim and that's why here he uses the fact that the Gemara doesn't say Leolam as a very important a touchstone or a very important key to develop a tremendous idea. Now, one thing is for certain. The halacha is not like, not like Rebbe Lezer Mervadun. The halacha is not that you can say Avad Zichro and be Matarin Aguna. But since Echad Meachronei Balei HaTosvat Rishonim Kadmonim Malachim Kedoshim once a Rishon makes such a statement and develops such an idea it cannot be dismissed halachically and here of course is what I said last week you have a sniff you have already a very fascinating basic viewpoint which alone is not enough to be Mati the woman but when put together with other factors becomes a definitive halachic guideline in being Mataraguna. And what's amazing is that in modern times, I don't think there was a chiva written in the 20th century where Reblazimir Vodun does not play a leading role. This concept, this Avad Zichro, the rubric by which it's called, I showed you last week, it was reproduced the first time in the Heichal Yitzchak, Reb Yitzchak Isaiah who had access to the Kitveyad of Machon Harry Fischel, there isn't a tshuva written in modern times where the Avad Zichro does not figure in the tshuva. And we're going to spend the next weeks uh, showing this black and white. Yes, David. A sniff means, um, uh, how would we say it, a, a subdivision. In other words, it's not strong enough. On the basis of Avad Zichro alone, you can't be matar in a gun. It's not strong enough. Because it's a shitat yachid. It's a shita rablazamer vadun. It was... Basically, not accepted halacha lemaisa. Exactly, a das jacha, the shita, the chuya, shita jacha. Call it as you wish. However, it remains a sniff, and that means when you have other reasons to be matir, it makes your case all the stronger. And I'll show it to you today. Okay. And now we come to the heart of today's shir, uh, which of course is memorable for us. It's Rabbi Yitzchok Inspector. Now, a few words about Rabbi Tzolchan's life. A very, very fascinating individual. Rabbi Dr. Ephraim Shimaf, who passed away this last year at Tuzachonel of Racha, Rabbi Shimaf wrote his doctor, Rabbi Tzolchan. It was later published by Yeshiva University in the 19... I believe it was published in 1957 or so, around that time. Um, interestingly enough, in the doctorate, he does not deal with the most important uh, part or well, the most important uh, element of Yitzchokhanan's spiritual heritage is what we're talking about now. The reason he doesn't deal with it in detail, he writes in the introduction that uh, he took Rabbi Belkin's advice, Dr. Belkin's advice, and that this material would be too difficult to deal with in English and too difficult for the, uh, for the readers to follow. 
Of course, that was the 1950s. It's an interesting comment on the status or the status of American orthodoxy at that time. Nowadays, these issues are dealt with not only in tradition, but you can find these issues dealt with on a popular fashion, even in the weekly Anglo-Saxon Jewish newspapers, as you know, uh, Jewish Week, uh, and, and the ilk of Jewish Week, or the like of Jewish Week, all across the United States, you have papers dealing with these type of issues today in black and white. How much do masses understand? They don't know, but certainly the day is over when you don't want to deal with these issues in English. But it's interesting, in his doctorate, in what was published, there's a lot of material in the Bithkol Hanan. What we're going to do today, the depth of it is missing. Now, about the Bithkol by the way, a lot of people have confused me over the years. It's interesting. People come over to me and say, you wrote on a bicycle Hanan, didn't you? And I understand what they're saying. I wrote on Rabbi Dr. Bernard Revel, but they confused the Revel, you understand what I'm saying? With Revel. They know what doctorates were done at Bernard Revel. Rabbi Shimov did a doctorate in the 50s. I did a doctorate in the 60s. Uh, Rabbi Shimov is a generation ahead of me. And Zechron Lavrach, he just died within the last year, within the last year or two. He was in, I believe, his 80s. He's a wonderful, kind, kindly rabbi, mechanic, educator. Uh, he actually uh, lived in my neighborhood. When I left America, he already had moved in. He was in charge of uh, Jewish education in Essex County, and he had lived in my neighborhood. I understand later years, he actually davened. He moved very close to my shul where he davened for many years, the shul that had formerly been the rabbi. Um, I'll tell you in parentheses too, people confuse me too, and it just happened to me at the airport, and I didn't realize until afterwards what happened. People come over to me and say, aren't you Rabbi Chavat Selet? And I realize afterwards what's happening. There's a professor, Chabad Salat. Do you name mean anything to you? Taught at Yeshiva. He's in retirement today. Taught in Yeshiva University for many years. Taught in Bernard Revel Graduate School. Taught in Yeshiva University. He was the son-in-law of, of, of Rabbi Dr. Uh, Mursky. Uh, 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 the famous uh, Samuel K. Mursky. Shmuel Kalman Mursky, who, who did the classic work on the Shiltat. So his son-in-law was uh, Chabad Salat. I don't know what his original name was. And evidently he advertised his name. So Chavetzal is also a, 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 a plant, a flower. So people in their minds, they, my, they know my name is a flower, but they get confused. Chavetzal and they say to me, aren't you Rabbi Chavetzal? And then it, I, it, it's dawned upon me that they really meant me, they really meant them, they know Rakefet, but they got the name confused. So these are two two confusions that have happened to me over the years, and today I understand both of them. Now, Rabbi Zulchanan's life was very fascinating. He was born in 1817. He died in 1896. He came from a Hasidish home. They say about Rabbi Zulchanan that he didn't have the most brilliant mind of his generation. He didn't have what you call an Eliusha cup, you understand, Rabbi Chaim Briska. They already say that Rabbi Chaim, at the age of three, he cured Porot, that at the age of three already, he was, he was already on the way to greatness in Torah. Pesachana was not like that. But they say his hot mother, his diligence was overwhelming. And he was zeichet to become, uh, those of you who know my Monday class, as the Rav described him, he was zeichet to become the most preeminent posseg of his generation. When you speak in terms of psakalach uh, in the second half of the 19th century, Rabbi Yitzchokhanan is the leading name that comes to mind. Uh, and it's fascinating because this Rabbi Yitzchokhanan universally accepted, universally accepted. A young man, Chassid Shahom, I believe he wore Gatel when he davened to the end of his life. Uh, he was literally the post achron 
in both the Litvisha and to a certain degree the Hasidic world. So I say certainly in the Hasidic world you're always fenced in by the fact that Hasidim will ultimately only go according to the Rebbe. So that Psak in the Hasidic world interacts with loyalty to a dynasty, which is a, an interesting point I'm throwing out that's worthy of, of research. But uh, he was the leading Posek, the Mamish, the Posek Achram. And this is what I said to you last week, that although Yeshiva Sebizchol Chanan represents, first of all, it was organized in 1897. And when they organized it, they couldn't find a better name. Rebbe had just died, and the immigrant community was an Eastern European immigrant community in New York City. Rebbe name, they had his picture on the walls in all the tenement houses. So they named the Yeshiva after him. When the yeshiva merged with Eitz Chaim, they couldn't find a better name. The Eitz Chaim name was forgotten. See, Yeshiva Sebastian and its real name is Eitz Chaim. It goes back to 1886. It was named Eitz Chaim. But the name Eitz Chaim was forgotten. See, the merger of both names was supposed to be perpetuated. But the name Rabbi Yitzchak meant so much more to the masses than Eitz Chaim. Yes, David. Yeah, one was in elementary school, Eitz Chaim, 1886. Sochanan was post-elementary, and by 1915, they were overlapping, because Yeshiva Sochanan already had a 7th and 8th grade, uh, had a, you know, the, you know, what, what do they call that, a junior high, and, uh, and already at time there was the RJJ school, so there was a merger, and the entire Yeshiva Sochanan became more of a high school, uh, although for a little while they did retain the 7th and 8th grade, but then they became a solely a high school, ultimately rabbinical school, and finally in 1928 they had on the college, and the rest is history. Now, where was he rub? He had a, a number of rabbins. He had two, it's interesting. He was rabbi in, he began in very small towns. I'm not going to bore you with the details about the later towns, but he was rabbi in small towns. What happened was Russia was developing. As you know, Russia was a very backward country. And they were starting to pave roads now in Russia. People had carriages, railroads, some of the contractors involved in paving these roads were Jews. And they would come to the small town. They were working around the town. They had Gentiles working for them. They were paving roads. They were contractors. And they met the Rav. And these contractors, many of them, you know, like the Jews were in Europe, these were fine Talmudic Chachamim. And they were overwhelmed that here's a man who's a gone in Torah, gone in Psak, and he's in a little town. And they made Reb name very famous. So famous that he went from position to position. In his life, he was rabbi in five communities. Each community robbed him, as if to speak, from the earlier community. And each one was larger. The fourth community, of course, he comes to Novatic. Now, Novatic already was still not a major city, but it was a major city of Torah. And he was succeeded in Novatic by the Arach HaShulchan. And you should know that when he went on to Kovna, which is the most preeminent rabbinate, because there was no rabbinate equal to Kovna, Vilna might have been the more important Jewish city, Torah city. But if you know your Jewish history, from the time of the Vilna Gon, when the chief rabbi Vilna was Rabbi Shmuel, and there was a tremendous machloket afterwards who would succeed him, so the Rabbanim made a takana that there would be no chief rabbi in Vilna. And that takana continued until modern times, it gets involved in Machleikid in the 20th century, and that you can read about in the Rakafadar and Chelik Bet. There's an important entry there in the Hebrew section. 
and I have all the details there, but that's not important for now. What's important for you to know is that in the 1900s, there was no chief rabbi in Vilna. So Vilna did not equal in prominence Kovna, which was the leading city. Watch the way I'm saying it. The leading East European Torah city that still had a chief rabbi in it. And Reb Tzolchana was chief rabbi of Kovna. Now, what's interesting is, when he was chief rabbi of Kovna, he used to complain, Halavai, I would have remained in Nevada. He says, look at all the Svarim, the Nevadaka Ravri, Bechim Michal Epstein, Parat, the he said, I could have written many Svarim, but Nevadik was a peaceful city. In Kovno, I'm bothered all the time. And it's an interesting commentary. In Kovno, he was under constant pressure. He was a focal rabbinate. He was asked for his opinion. He got involved. He had to take stands on the Chibat Zion, he was, again, I can't go into more details or I'll be let off the field, but it's interesting, he was a Chovev Tzion. His secretary, Rabbi Lipschitz, Rabbi Yaakov Lipschitz, was anti-Zionism. He was the pro, he was, Rabbi was the prototype of what later becomes the Mizrahi, and his secretary was the prototype of what later becomes Agudat Yisrael. You follow me? So there's a whole history here of where he would take pro-Zionist stands, the nascent Zionist movement, his secretary would would subvent his viewpoints or change his viewpoints is very fascinating. And the Rabbi Yaakov Lipschitz left a three-volume autobiography mainly dealing with his relationship with Rabbi Skolchanan and how he would go out of his way to misrepresent the great Kovner Rav's views on Zionism somehow, just the way Jewish Observer and Art Scroll can do it today when they put out a volume on Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky and no one mentions that he taught in the Mizrahi uh, in, in Toronto for, for many years he said a, a shear there in Toronto in the Mizrahi building. But anyway, Olam Kmenago Halech. That's Rabbi Yitzchokhanan. Now, he put out five volumes. His first volume was Be'er Yitzchak. Then he put out two volumes of Nachal Yitzchak. Then he put out two volumes of Be'en Yitzchak, the last volume coming out literally one year before he died, 1895. I might also tell you he had a, a very great son, Ratzvi Hirsch Rabbanovitz. son was a great gong. But because the father was so great, people don't really realize how great the son was. Also, the son did not leave Svarim. He assisted his father, but he left very little of his own. Ratzvi Hirsch Rabbanovitz, why does he go? Right away, you should ask a question. The yeshivas call Yeshivat Rabbein Yitzchokhan, and those of you who know, know his last name was Spectre. How do you have a Spectre, and how do you have a Rabbanovitz? Rabinowitz? And by the way, many people named Spector and named Rabinowitz are, are, are direct descendants of Rabbi Yitzchokhan and Spector. How do you have the difference in names? It's very simple. In Europe, the law was that if you went bankrupt, if you wanted to start over again, you had to change your last name. This was Chok Velo Yavar. It was a different system than today. Today, people go bankrupt and they're not uh, branded. No one knows, uh, you know... No one knows they were bankrupt. They weren't. You know, when a person goes bankrupt, there's a bit of a disgrace in it because you've left all the creditors high and dry. Then you start over again. It's important. People should know that you went bankrupt. Beware. In Europe, they made you change your name. Once you changed your name, everyone knew already the story. Reb Tzvihish Rabinovich, like many sons of great rabbis, saw what people suffered from the rabbinate. You know, the rabbinate is a difficult profession. Although all professions are difficult. But somehow in the rabbinate you feel bad when you see Gedoli Israel suffer because of Kleina uh, Balabatnam, because of small Balabatnam who can eat a rabbi's heart out. So a son decided to go into business. No, when a great Talmud Chachem goes into business, he becomes bankrupt. That's how he got the name Rabbi Novitz. It was, I believe, his mother's family name. 
he took on his mother's family name, and he then went back to the rabbinate when he became Mitava Rav. And I yet knew people who knew him. They said he was a Gadol Shebegadolim, but simply his father's farim was so uh, great that it that it 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 simply blinded the people to recognizing the greatness of the son. Now, let me begin, and let me show you what happens here, because what's crucial about Rebetzkol Hanan, and I think, David, your question will become clear too, what's crucial is he didn't just answer isolated questions. It begins with an isolated question, but then he develops it as a format. And his viewpoints spread like wildfire all over the Torah world. In other words, just like Reb Chaim, you know, when you talk about the Jewish world, what do we mean? The, the Mashor asks, if those of you are familiar with the Mashor, so the Mashor will say, Makshin Ha'ilam, the world asks. So it has to be back in 1953. I, uh, I asked my Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Weiss, on the plane coming to Israel now, his granddaughter was on the plane. So I had a real thrill to meet his granddaughter. She's mar- married to a Belsa Chassid, to a Belsa and Einikel. Very nice fellow. And uh, we got to talk, and he tells me, my wife is uh, Rabbi Yosef Weiss' grandchild. I couldn't believe I knew who her great-grandparents were. You know, I know the whole family. I was very close to her. I was a Ben Bite by Rabbi Yosef Weiss. So one time I said to him, Rabbi, tell me, what does it mean, Makshin Oilam? The world asks? So he answered me, it's the truth. He said, the world, that counts. In other words, the world out there, when you think about it, what's going on today, the Super Bowl in Miami. All right, the Super Bowl in Miami. The testimony against Clinton. In the state of Israel, Yitzchak Mordechai, yes, Yitzchak Mordechai, Kochadvi, Shmochadvi, uh, traitor, not a traitor. That's what people are concerned with. That doesn't keep the Torah world going. There's the dedicated Jews that learn Torah, that are living Torah. They keep the Torah world going. That's the world that counts. Makshin Oilem doesn't mean 90% of the population. It means that 10% that live and breathe Torah. So you take Rab Chaim Briskeshita. It spread like wildfire. So so you're going to ask me, what do you mean it spread like wildfire? How many people, Gershon will say to me, how many people know Rab Chaim Shita? That there were 15 million Jews in the world then. Out of 15 million, did 10,000 know Rab Chaim Shita? But among that 10,000 that keeps the Torah people going, it spread like wildfire. The same thing with Yitzchol Hanan. When he developed this point of view, the Rabbanim was so hungry. They jumped on it. Oh, we have a way to go. We have a way to answer. And this is what made his viewpoint so famous. Now, let's begin. As I said a moment ago, his first volume was Be'er Yitzchak. In Be'er Yitzchak, you have a very simple question. And you have a simple question with an interesting description. And, and he's describing the following situation. Yes, David? David, I have to tell you, the heart of your question I'll deal with tomorrow because you asked a wonderful question. Because of your question, I was so to more understanding of what I said last week. And I said something at the start of today's year that's mamish should be published in every Torah journal. I said something, Mamish Lamita Shal Torah, but you, at the start of the you have to hear it on the tape. So you should know, that's Pshat in the Gemara, Tainit, Mital Midai, Yoter Mikulam. Understand? And that can never change. 
And in my uh, work on the rub, I have a hidden code. I'm going to tell it to you now. So when it's found 100 years from now, people shouldn't think I wrote the Druach HaKodesh. I went out of my way that in the introduction, which begins the volume, introduction of the author, the first Maimah Chazal I quote is me, Talmidai Yotemi Kulam. The last Maimah Chazal quoted the Rav's last words in volume 2 at the very end, after 600 pages, is me, Talmidai Yotemi Kulam. And that's what Torah is all about. The way you begin, the way you end, it's constant, it's ongoing. You never finish, you never begin. The same by Chazal. And uh, Ephraim, I throw out to you the challenge. If you can come up in your paper with the Rebbe's viewpoint wherein Torah Umada differs from Torah and Derech Eretz, you have an A. Okay? But remember, I have word by word what the Rebbe said. Let's see what you come up with. A deal? You got it. Okay, now, in the Be'er Yitzchak, the question is as follows. Uh, and this is a description. Interestingly enough, there's a similar question, and we spoke about this a long time ago, a similar question, uh, it seems that in Russia, there were these tremendous river tributaries. And uh, this person is in the river. I don't know what they were doing there. Maybe they had to chop down wood in the river and there would be trees in the river that generally the flow there is like the Jordan River. Generally speaking, you can walk across the Jordan River at most points. You know what I'm talking about? The Jordan River is just a small little tributary. Uh, certainly this year when there's no rain, Lower Lainu, uh, you certainly can v- walk across the Jordan River at most points. And that's why the army constantly patrols there because over the years a lot of terrorists have come across. Now, of course, it's a different ballpark, but uh, it's uh, even a big Shiloh with Shabbos if you're allowed and, uh, to keep the patrols going. So in the religious settlements, they use the Grumagee because it's Mamish Shiloh. What does Pikuach Nefesh? Does Pikuach Nefesh mean that it has to happen once a year or once in seven years is also Pikuach Nefesh? It's not an easy question. How do you define Pikuach Nefesh? On Patash. On, on, on Patash means Pitachon Shotef. It's an interesting question. But uh, evidently, what, from what I can understand from the Chuvan, and I'm not an expert, this would have to know someone who knows uh, the economics and geological situation of Russia, at that time, they were chopping down trees. And suddenly a torrential stream would come along, like what happened in Did Yehuda last week, swept away, killed three people, Oalenu. And this happens all the time. Um, suddenly a torrential flow of water came along, and the man is swept away. Now watch what he says. While he was working with the trees, when the water came along, he held on to a tree with all his might, trying to hold on to the tree to save his life, that he would survive the torrential gust of the water by holding on to the tree. And then he says, And he says, Nevertheless, the water was torrential and it overran him, and there's no question that it appeared that he had drowned from the flood holding on to the tree. In addition, And he describes here, that while the water was coming, the, the water, the torrential force was so strong, it uprooted the trees upstream, and these trees came hurling down at tremendous speed, knocked them in the heart, 
and once again killed him. So that, in other words, two things have happened here. Number one, the first flow of water was enough to kill him. And number two, if he was still alive, there's no question that the trees coming down, a tremendous might that were evidently stopped by the trees on a lower level were much more dense. And they struck the trees. This hit him in the heart and knocked him into the water as well. Three hours later, they went to hunt for him. They couldn't find the body. And of course, what happened here is the body was washed away. And this goes on all the time. So many bodies at the bottom of the ocean. All of you know, for instance, even the flight that recently went down, as much as they dug and the equipment we have today, nevertheless, not all the bodies were recovered. Where was the crash recently? Was it off Pittsburgh? What, what am I, where, where, there was a crash recently where one of the heads of the OU was killed, was on the plane. Um, there was a crash, of course, a few years ago outside of Long Island, a plane that exploded in midair. There, too, almost all the bodies were recovered, but not all the bodies. Lockerbie, I believe all the bodies were recovered because there the plane crashed over land. But in these two later crashes where they crashed over water, with all our sophisticated equipment today, there were bodies that were never recovered. So three hours later they started to hunt and they couldn't find the bodies. In addition, a number of years have gone by. It doesn't say how many years. And of course, Avad Zichro is the rubric or the code word for Reb Lezimei Vadun. Vinishalti imyeshmakom latira mekivleha igun, and and he said, I was asked, do I have a, do we have a way? Can we be mati this woman? And of course, this is the classic example of Mein Shainla himself. Logically speaking, everyone will agree. The man is dead. Logically speaking, there's no reason in the world to assume that he survived. But never, and logically speaking, we cannot be certain. Why can't we be certain? Why can't we be certain? Because we don't know. We can't say we saw every part of the water. The body swept away. It's a river. It's a tributary. Who knows where the body is today? Maybe a miracle happened. Maybe he held on to a log. And what we said last week, what we quoted from the Gemara, he smiled at every adversary. God did a miracle. The log reached shore. He was afloat. In other words, this is the one chance in a million, in a billion, but this is by Shainla himself, and you can't be certain. It's not like falling into a kiddie pond where you saw for sure he didn't go out. Okay. Well, this is the problem. Never found the body. Your side, logic is logic. Logic is logic. What do we do? And here, of course, he develops the idea we have a dual majority. Majority number one, when a person drowns in a torrential gust of water, even if the body is not found, all it means that the body was washed away, was washed down shore. Someday the body will turn up or the body will rot at the bottom of the ocean. But that's the first rove. The second rove here is exactly what David said. No one can survive being hit by a tree that's coming along at 90 miles an hour and hits you, whacks you in the heart with all that strength 
a hurricane, no one can survive it. You have a second row. And he says something very interesting here. And this is widely quoted. What's very important is that these two majorities have to happen at once. And what he means is as follows. You see, and this goes into the whole question of what we mean by suffix, fake faker, or what we call here treirube. Treirube, two majorities. Listen to me very carefully because it's technical language. Treirube is the mirror image of fake faker. Understand what I'm saying? In other words, what are we saying here? The majority of people who are in water at a time like this drown. The majority of people hit by a tree die. Two majorities. Two doubts that take away the cheskat chaim. You understand? Sveik, sveika. Halachically here we call it tre rubei. Two majorities that create a sveik, sveika. Now, I don't want to go into great detail here. There's a, there's a lot. I'll explain. I'll, I'll make it even clearer in a minute. There's a shape shmaita, but what he says is very fascinating. In order for it to be a sveik, sveika, in order for it to have two sveikat, they have to happen at the same time. Why? Because if one happens before the other, then look what happens. The woman would ask a question. My husband was in water when there was a torrential flood. Obviously he drowned. So what would you answer? No, we can't uh, paskin like that because the Chachamim said, Then she comes back a week later and says, But I heard about the fact that the trees knocked his heart open. All right, that's another suffix. But at that point, there's one suffix because the first suffix was already answered. So that when she comes along and asks the second question or brings the second evidence, it's again only one suffix. And that's not enough. You have to have two suffix, two majorities. So Yisrael Khanan says that this is exactly two majorities happening once. Why? Because when she's asking the question, she's giving you all the facts. And at that moment, both she and the rabbi in the presentation of the case, you already have the first question about the water, the second question about the trees, and at the moment the rabbi is getting it, you have both sveikot at once. Tre rubei. Now why is this so important? Why is this so important? And here's what Ephraim wanted to ask. Why is it so important? After all, if the Chachamim made Xerah by himself, in each case here, it's Mayim She'en Lahim Sof. Right or wrong? Here's Rabbi Sulchanan, and here's what he develops. Now, he was not the first one to touch upon this. Rabbi Sulchanan already alluded to this, but he developed it fully. Gentlemen, you're absolutely right. Chachamim made Xerah by himself. But, Whenever you make a gezeira, it's only one suffake. When you have two sveikat, or treirubay, interchangeable, nothing stands in the way of two sveikat. It can't be any stronger than a dindiorita. And generally speaking, in a dindiorita, and there's a tremendous literature on this, suffolk the arita lechumra, Suffolk the rabbanim lekula. But even by a suffolk the arita, if you have two sveikat already, you can be making a ma'ikah hadin. I don't say we are. We look for more sniffim. You follow me, David, the word sniff? 
like with an automatic elevator on Shabbos. We put together many snifim. It's melachashen, it's rich legufa, it's, it's psak, it, perhaps it's psikresha, the lonichale, you understand, perhaps it's shtaim shasu malacha, we, it's grama, we put together, it's mitasheik, we put together many snifim. And then we can be matia. Mehika hadin, it can very well be that when you have a suffake, a sveika, that's enough to remove an isidi or raita. Alachet kamavakam an isidi rabbanan. And this is Rabbi Zlochanan's tremendous chiddush. And he's not the one. I mean, his chiddush is more in applying it. But he makes it black and white. Maim shein lech himself, but if you can come up with two sveikot against it, you have knocked out the Isa de Rabbanan. And once you knock out the Isa de Rabbanan, you can go back to the Oraita level. And under the Oraita level, Chazaka and Rov are enough to remove the Maim Shendlech himself. And this is Reb Yitzchak Elchanan. Now, in addition, wait, give me one second. In addition, in addition, Lachain, he quotes here the Kehillat Yaakov. Now, the Kehillat Yaakov, of course, was a Talmud Mufaka of Chaim Velashen. And he quotes the Kehillat Yaakov that Reb Chaim Velashen had a similar case. I am quoting the Kilat Yaakov. The Kilat famous Talmud of, of Rabbi Yaakov Karlin is one of the Talmudim of Hakim, the earliest Velashim Talmudim. And it's a very similar case. person fell off a bridge and, and, and what did he fall on? Ice. Russian ice. You know how hard the ice is? That alone is enough to kill you. To fall on such a height, to hit the ice? Russian ice, you can walk across, absolutely. We're talking Russia during the winter. Right now they're having a very cold winter. I was in Russia in, in 81, 85, 89. 85 is one of the coldest winters ever. Riga, 30 below zero. You have no hasaga. What's that like? No hasaga. I don't know concentrate. Riga was Riga. I don't know what concentrate. Riga was was Rumbalat. They killed tens of thousands of Jews. Riga was in Irvain by Israel. That's where that's where Gedolia Gedolia Sula in Riga. The Labavitcher Rebbe was in Riga. Babich was still strong and there was still an element of Chabad left in the 80s in Riga. It was unbelievable. An underground element. But you have any idea what that means? So you fall on the ice from a height that's like, that's like running into a wall at, at 50 miles an hour. You kill yourself. Here, that fellow from YU when I was in America, they told me Yeshiva College student got killed skiing, skied into a tree. I don't know the name. I don't know who it is. But there were, a lot of people were talking about it. Lower lane, it's not the first thing, because I know other people, skiing, hide, you know, we live in a good life today, you've got to do everything. Well, you've got to do everything. Imagine he skied into a tree, so you can imagine falling into ice. And then, from the ice, the ice broke from the force of the impact, and he fell into the water. So, Rabchaim Velashim was not there, the exact reasoning, Treiru Bey, Sveik Sveika, and all the Chachmei Vilna agreed. And evidently there too was a case 
where they didn't recover the body. It was a river, they didn't recover the body. Now, let me finish up. I'll open up the questions in a minute. At the end he says, see, this is very important. He says, with all the lumbers that I've said before, with the Tredu Bay, the Sveik Sveika, I absolutely feel I can be Matir. Allah had come of a comma, this is the most important part. He brought down from Chaim Velazhen. I mean, after Rab Chaim Velazhen, you know, you're quoting now a giant of giants. What an ending. But look what he says at the end. I have the spike spike, and then I have the other sniff. The other sniff, which later turns into mamish, part of every fake fake in modern times. Because the guy never contacted his family. And this is Reb Lezimir Vadun. A normal person contacts his family. So now you have no less than three sveikot, or if I may use the term, three sniff, excuse me, three sniffim. Sniff number one, you fall into water at this height, hit the ice, dead. Sniff number two, you go through the ice into the water, dead. Sniff number three, had he survived, he would have contacted his family. And this was the Chiva Rabbi Yitzchel Khanin wrote. You see, Rabbi Valashin's Chiva only appears very much later. It appears in the Chutam Ashulash, which was published by his great-grandson. Rabbi Yitzchel Khan evidently never saw the Chutam Ashulash. Because he quotes the Chiva from the Kila Jakov. But here's a Chiva that was published, the Be'er Yitzchak, immediately publicized. And the world was just romanticized, if I use that word, our world, makshina Ailam, by this chuva, by this approach, by this clarity, how he did it. But watch what happens. Okay, let me open it for question. First of all, I have to thank you very much for coming. I appreciate your being here. I, 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 it's unbelievable. Uh, last year in the call, I didn't suffer so much because the call had a larger attendance to begin with. There was a bigger group here. But it's, it's true to form that every year, as the year drags on, and they're, they're, they're worried with the Oradea and Rabarin, um, I suffer. But okay, I appreciate, I can't give Muslims like the rabbi who preaches about Shmirat Shabbat, who's he talking to? To the Jews in Shul, the old story. Yes, Ephraim, what's your question? Answer. David. No, no, what it means when water is frozen solid, it's only the top layer. You don't, the water doesn't freeze down to the, the home. As you go deeper, the water is warmer. It's closer to the earth, of course. So what it means is, with the force of the fall, he cracks his head and breaks his head on the ice, but he goes through to the water and he drowns. If he would, you see, if you, if you wouldn't fall through the ice, if the fall is not that bad, you would survive. Here there's a double problem. He fell evidently off a bridge. Loa Lenu, my, my wife's aunt, died in Lake Placid, 1935. Fell through the ice. Yeah. Fell through the ice and during the winter. Uh, 
Well, listen, I, the river is cold, it's cold. Of course, you got to go to the top player. Let me tell you something. At your former rebellion, I can say testimony. I knew two women who traveled from Vilna to Moscow seven hours each way in order to be toiling in the mikvah in Moscow. Not only that, how could you use the river at night? You have to go naked, the police are patrolling. You don't know what it was living under the communists. They were worried stiff about any... any every, why do you think the communist empire went, went, went bankrupt? They, on every tourist coming in, they had two KGB agents. It was an unbelievable society. You understand? You can't, you can't run a country that way. And, and uh, the same thing with Israel. We have a long way to go yet to have American productivity because even in the aircraft industry or in the armament industry, someone was telling me just last Thursday, for 50 workers, they have two foremen. In America, for 150 workers, you have one foreman. You understand the difference? A socialist system, everyone's a foreman and you're watching. And so, obviously, they couldn't go. They went. But I happen to know two families from Vilna, the Rice family and the Chernova family, I think they were called. They, they both live in Bayit Vagan today, one in Bayit Vagan and one in Gilo. The Mesirat Nefesh was unbelievable. You're absolutely right. In, mikvah there was a, in, in Moscow there was a mikvah that functioned, and in Leningrad there was a mikvah that functioned, in other words, by word of mouth, quietly. And the KGB didn't interfere. Loa Lenu, what can I tell you? Russia was the communist system. They were worried about Western agents. This was the paranoia. The communist system would destroy the world. It had to be a closed society. The whole concept of the workers' revolution. But after so many years of communism, their standard of living was less than the Hatikva standard of living in South Tel Aviv. You understand what I'm saying? So it remained a very close society. They were worried tourists coming in, movies. What ultimately brought the communist empire under were, were computers and videos. As much as you could control anyone who snuck in a video, 5,000 people saw a video with Western standard of living. When they watched the newscast from Paris from New York, as much as the Russians try to show how terrible life is, but you saw in the background, endless cars, compared that to the streets in Moscow, which were empty of cars, you understand? So this was the communist empire. They had a real problem. Um, ultimately, Chernobyl, that terrible accident, since they couldn't hide it, the world today is small, and that accident already showed how corrupt, how, how rotten, how much rot there is how much muck there is to the very core of the communist empire, that they couldn't keep their atomic facilities on a level and have an accident like that that ultimately killed hundreds, shortened the lives and killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands and, and had fallout all over Europe, including... No, no, no. Here, one witness is sufficient. We spoke about that. But a witness has to be able to tell us what happened. But here, there are no witnesses. We just know the facts of what happened. In other words, but there are no witnesses. There's no body. And this is the problem. There's no body. A witness can only tell you what happened. The witness can't tell you whether he's dead or alive. We're, but we're making the chazaka that if you hit the, wa the ice with that impact, you're dead. If you fall into freezing water in the middle of the winter, you drown. The body's not found. You're dead. Whatever he can witness. The, nothing, the witness doesn't determine anything. What determines it is the interpretation of the rabbis on the basis of the, of the testimony of the witness. We spoke about that for many weeks. Okay? Now what he has to witness, he has to just tell us what he saw. 
we have to interpret it halachically. If he saw a dead body, we have no problem. Except at a time of war. There it's not enough to see a dead body. You have to say, I buried him. It's the Gemara in Yavama. Do you understand? At a time of war? No, because we don't believe a person. You've been in the army. You know what it is? A time of war? It's helter-skelter. People imagine things. So at a time of war, we say, Bidudami. You know what Bidudami means? Dimyon. People imagine things. So there he has to say, Kvativ. But during civilian life, if you say you saw a dead body, you saw a dead body. The question is, do you know what a dead body is? So if you say Dr. Applebaum pronounced this person dead, and then you don't know what happened to the body, that's sufficient to be Matra and Aguna. But here the problem is, no one saw the body. Everyone is just saying, we saw him fall, he hit the ice, he fell through the water, we searched three hours later, we found nobody. That's what we know. That adds to the rove. That's all. It adds to the rove. A body you didn't find. How many people have their heads cracked open and survived? That's the whole thing. That's my machine himself. But that's the witnesses have to give us the facts. The rabbanim have to interpret it. And this Reb Zilchan and this the Avad And in this particular case, it's the third suffix, the third sniff, and it certainly removes the gezeira the rabbanim of my machine himself. And he passes that way. Al tonight, like we said many months ago, two great rabbanim will agree. Okay. Now I want to show you um, how this how this hetter takes off. It's now years later, and we come to the Ein Yitzchak. This is one of the most famous tributor of Pesachanan. Chelik Aleph, Siman Chaf Bet. And look at the way he begins. See, even the beginning, I analyzed this, by the way, in Rakafarar and Chelik Bet. I have an article um, that I published on the 100th anniversary of Pesachanan's death. It appeared in traditions. One of those articles that I published where people asked me for the rights, if I would grant right to reprint, which I happily did. It's, uh, I've had a number of articles that have been, the Dinner the Machot, the Dinner has been republished many times. My piece on uh, the Sab of Slabotka has been republished in various publications. Um, something I did in the, on, on the Rabnet in America was republished without my permissions. People showed it to me in some journal. I love people who, uh, you know, common courtesy, you're a Ben Torah, you ask the author's permission, what am I going to say? No, I'm going to demand royalties, it's not, not, not on a cafe. But gladly we published, but just ask permission. Tzuchanan, there was a night, it was an important article, it was well received in, in the world that counts, Makshin Oilem. So I, I, I call attention to this, look how the way this trip begins, it's Ein Yitzchak Chelek Aleph, Chelek Siman Chafbet, Nishalti Mikamarabonim. You understand what that means? That Rabbi Yitzchanan's reputation was such as the Mati Ragunat that already a number of rabbis turned to him. This was not by chance. They knew that this was the address to go to. And here already is a classic story. A boat was going to America. This is what I told you last week. A boat was going to America. Shayaba Kamanashim. There were many Jews on it. And in the middle of the ocean, something exploded. There was a tremendous fire on the boat. And a little bit afterwards, the boat drowned. And people saw what happened. Not one soul was saved from those who fell into the water, didn't have lifeboats. According to the testimony of experts, it was impossible to save these people. 
only a miracle. The boat was aflame. They fell into the water. No one gets out alive in these circumstances. On the boat were a number of Jews who left wives in Europe. And I was asked whether there is a way to be martyred these pure women, these poor women from the chains of Aguna. And that's the question, classic question. Imagine what happens here, an explosion in the middle of the ocean. It's, it's a rough... How can you be saved? For, and then, if you are saved from the explosion, you wind up, the boat sinks, you're now in the water. How can you be saved? Excuse me? A life jacket. I don't know if that life jacket's then. I have my doubts. We're talking, we're talking now in the 1880s. But, but how can you be saved? And even with a life jacket in the middle of the ocean, how long can you keep afloat? Food, sharks, sea monsters. I don't know what's doing out there. So, of course, every logic in the world says these men are dead, but it's Maim Shainla himself. Who can say? They saw the whole ocean. And look what he writes. That he writes to the inquirers, You wrote to me, Very fascinating. See, they're writing to him. We all heard these at Rabbanim writing. We heard about your viewpoint. We heard about the way you go. We heard about the Trey Rube. And you and that the Basil Khanan holds when there's Trey Rube, even the Maim Shainlich himself falls away. Explain to us. And here there's Trey Rube, the majority of people caught up in a fire in the ocean die. The majority of people who drown in the ocean die. The majority of people who don't contact their wives after a reasonable period of time are dead. Avad Zichro. And Rabbi Sochanan, in the middle of the tshuva, explaining everything we've explained so far, he tells the following story. London. I was asked a very similar question from London. To Agunat, whose husbands were traveling from London to Africa, in the summer of 1881. Now what does it mean, traveling from London to Africa? It evidently means traveling from London to South Africa. And it means they were traveling on business. And you got to remember, Jews were businessmen. Particularly South Africa. It is very fascinating that among the original people to establish business connections with South Africa were Lithuanians. Were Eastern Europeans South Africa until today has a literature tradition. Have you ever met people from South Africa? They'll tell you that their great-grandparents came from Lita to South Africa. And here you see it in the Triva. They were traveling on their way to, he says Africa, but he has to mean South Africa because I don't think Jews were doing business in Kenya yet and in, in all these other African countries. They didn't exist yet. They were in the Middle Ages in the 1880s. And he says, the boat sunk at sea. And the, these men were on the boat that were never heard from again. In addition, 
Here we come to the Avad Zichro, Shalom in the They lived in peace with their wives. And here he quotes the Khatam Sofa. And I'll show you the Khatam Sofa later today. The Khatam Sofa already alludes to the fact that the world has changed. And that the world is much smaller. And the Khatam Sofa talks about the fact that in his time there was international mail. You know what you see, you take for granted. International mail is a revelation. That you can put a letter into the mailbox, mail it in Yerushalayim, and it's delivered seven, eight days later in New York City. Fabulous. Even during the dark period of the communist empire, legally, there was supposed to be mail from Russia to the Western world. Of course, Halakha Lamaisa, the KGB again spent millions of dollars, millions, billions of dollars over the years, people whose entire job it was just to censor the mail going in and going out. So you can imagine a country, could you imagine the United States if we had FBI agents reading every piece of mail and CIA agents reading every piece of mail going overseas. And by the way, a sovereign state has that right. There are letters that the American government has the right, will intercept, will read, will Xerox, reseal it. You will not know that anyone f- t- touched the mail. There are, no, for, for security, for, for national security. Excuse me? Uh, well, leave that to the CIA and the FBI. In other words, I know that in Israel, I can tell you that during the communist empire, letters going from here to Russia many times were read by the Mossad. I can tell you, because once in a while they would show me a Xerox of the letter and ask me for my opinion on something that was being said in the letter. Of course, they had to send the letter on, but this is national security. Whether it's right or not right, whether it can be done today, not done, I don't know. You have to check American law, but if an American law today, they can find the rabbi guilty. I understand that Rabbi Weinberg was found guilty. That's what I'm told. I don't know. Check with your parents. That if a rabbi can be found guilty of, of, of passing on secret information that a woman doesn't go to mikvah, it could be that today you're not allowed to open up any letter. You need a court order. It's like a wiretapping. Could be. I don't know. But, but it's fascinating the Khatam Sofa talks already about international mail, and you fellas don't realize it is a fabulous concept. Rabbi Yisrochanere talks about the telegraph. You have any idea what the telegraph means? Imagine you can send the telegraph within a day, and the next day get an instantaneous answer. That was unbelievable. Then a telegraph—that's the famous story. Rabbi Chaim Briskin, Rabbi Yisrochanere. Remember, I told you the story so many times over the years with the Shail of the Get in Vilna. And and then they write to Ripskochan and send us a one word telegraph answer is to get Kasher valid or Pasul invalid. So he says if the man survived drowning, no matter where he wound up in the world, he would have the ability to contact his wife. And if he didn't, what does it show us that he's dead? And then he goes into the whole problem. How do we know the husband and wife get along? He's a very fascinating trip. How do you know they get along? Very fascinating trip. How do we know? You all know today what goes on in America. I, I told you the pain, the heartache, that's called Kedushin. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. I spoke with, with me on Erev Shabbos. I called to give a muscle tough, some student of mine after very horrible, was married to a student of mine, he became a Messianic Lubavitcher, they got divorced, it was one of the few times I told the girl, you got to get divorced, you're not going to survive this man, she got divorced, it was a, an amicable divorce, at least they divorced, but covered, 
She just got engaged. She's getting married June 27th. I committed myself to being at the wedding. Okay, Be'ezrat Hashim. And I asked her about her brother. Her brother's wife is the one who got the enrollment from Iraq. She said, yes, the girl thinks she's, she can go with her. She's an Ashadish running around with another man. Now, it defies imagination. These are from people. So how do you know? Maybe the guy, as happy as can be, he walked away from the ship, walked away from the shipwreck. He never had what that, that lacks. He left behind. You understand what goes on? You're, you're happily married, I hope. But what I see, girls in Midrash of Maria, one, one third of the class plus from divorced homes. So listen what he says here. That the women showed letters from their husbands when they left London to travel. They wrote to their, to their wives and they said... When we reach Cape Town, what does that show me right away, Ephraim? Cape Town, what does it show me? No, South Africa. Follow me? It proves what I said before. When we reach Cape Town, we promise you we're going to write, Bava Rabba, we love you, Nefesh, we miss you. When we reach Port Elizabeth, we're, we're going to write to you. And, and they wrote these letters. They promised to write faithfully. And this is the greatest proof that if they had been saved, they would have kept their promise. This is the way Jews act. Look at the way he writes. I don't know if this applies today. He's relating to the Pasuk that a Jew treats his wife honestly. If you promise to write to your wife, you're going to keep that promise. You're not going to change your mind. You're going to keep that promise. You love your wife. Of course, what he says here is no application in the land of Clinton. He says, you don't have to be Jewish. This is Dennis Prager speaking now. Dennis Prager has a meridic vatam. You know, Dennis Prager is a tragedy as far as I'm concerned because he should be from. And he likes them. No one ever taught him went to Flappish Yeshiva. No one ever taught him the basics of life simply is that it's a shame because Dennis Prager very capable but he says of Vartan one of his tapes that's Meredith he says when he went to Flappish in the 50s he could have gone to a secular high school would have been taught the same set of values every kid growing up in America Jew or Gentile was taught that it's a fine ethic moral that you're a virgin until you're married that you don't commit adultery you understand what went on with Ingrid Bergman she had an affair when she was married and had a child they would move in Hollywood no would go to see the movie the Roman had a child she's an honorary Jew it's, you can go out of your mind have children no fathers yes fathers and make immaculate conceptions who knows what goes on but here where he writes Dennis Prague is right that outside of uniquely Jewish concepts such as Shabbat, Kashrut, Hart, Mishpacha, the ethics and morals that we would have received in a public school in the 1950s was exactly like the ethics and morals we would have received in a yeshiva. And here he writes, this is meritic what he writes here, that you don't even have to be Jewish. A man loves his wife, a man loves his children. A man promises to write, you're, you're going to keep your promise. And, and he says the very fact that they didn't write is the greatest proof that they are dead. And, and he says, here we have Trey Rube, that they were on a ship, the ship sunk at sea, these people who drown in the middle of an ocean, who survives? The rover is absolutely against it. And number two, if they, if, they, if they haven't contacted their wives, this is the greatest proof that they are dead. This is the proof of a vadzichro. 
and again and again he hits away. They promised, they left their wives. They left their wives with Shalom, with Shalva. They're going on business. They love their wives. They love their children. They long for their children. They long for their wives. And, and he says, certainly, Avadzich row becomes the second row here. And then, of course, he gets on another factor that we've spoken about at length already many months ago. And in this case, that, of course, is what, what Rabbi Rackman spoke about in 1975, that here you have women who are young, have children, depend upon them. They must remarry. They're anxious to remarry. They need a man to support them, to give them sustenance. So under these circumstances, he says, with the rove of the drowning, here he puts down one year, and certainly in this case where it's a number of years since their husbands disappeared, and I'm here ready. He makes it conditional not on two great rabbis, but one great rabbi. Interesting. So that you see already how much more confident he is from the Be'er Yitzchak to the En Yitzchak, from one case to the other case. In other words, a whole world has gone by with endless questions. And now already he's so much more confident not two additional rabbis, one additional rabbi is sufficient, but he's turned the Trey Rube into a format, into a computer program, into guidance for life, into guidance for Psak, and he's not afraid to do it halachalamaisa. And you have one rove, and you have a second rove, so you have the question of the boat to America, and in answering the question of the boat to America, and those words again, Kamerabanim, in other words, the word has gone out. In addition to the boat to America, he talks about the boat to Cape Town, and you see already that one question after another has come to Rebbe Tzalchanan, and one question after another. He's Matthew with this formula, with this computer program, with this printout, with this format, what we call halachically Trey Rubei, but what is in reality a reflection of Sveik Sveika, which means putting together Snifim and Maim Shein like himself falls away, the Gezerah the Rabbanan falls away. Now, here's the Khatam Sofa. A few words about the Khatam Sofa. All of you know, and it's maybe hard for you to comprehend this because you have to have a bit of a background, but there are various ways to post Sekhalacha. And as you know, the Rav didn't deal with Achrayim. Rav Moshe didn't deal with Achrayim. I've always called attention to my students. You see, Rav Moshe is asked a question, and the inquirer says, the Malamad Lahoyal says this, and Rav Moshe answers, Ein hasefa hazeh tachat yadi. Now I can testify that Otsa Hasvarim was like a half block away from Tiferet Yerushalayim. Understand? Otsa Hasvarim, 33 Canal Street. Tefet Yerushalayim was on East Broadway. You just walked like a half block around around the bend. And there was Rabbi Uncle Goldman. I used to remember his father. It's a whole world that's gone already. Yankel Goldman. You remember Yankel died young. His father was an old Gera Hasid. Yankel was a Taravadas boy. Broke his father's heart enlisting in World War II to fight the Germans. 
was probably one of the early Torvadas boys to enlist in the United States Army to fight the Germans. And then he came back, took over the business, and under Rabbi Yankel it thrived. His father was an old Gerachas that I can still remember, would be sitting in the store, davening, learning, and Yankel already was running the business. Yankel, I don't think he hit, I don't believe he hit 60. Maybe, maybe he didn't hit, I don't believe he hit 60. He died, died relatively young. Of course, I understand also his firm that has a store in Borough Park. I guess it's his grandchildren that are running it. Who knows? Or people bought the rights to the store. So, um, Rebunish Shalom, all Reb Meishan had to do was, they were very good friends, very close. Reb David Feinstein, I can tell you in my time, that Reb David Feinstein used to have lunch together with Yankel in this farm store. That's how close they were. They used to have lunch every day in this farm store together. All Reb Meishan had to do was send the student around the corner to get him. Muhammad Lahoel. It's not so rare. It was reprinted already in America in the early 50s, whatever it was. The most Reb David Tzvi Hoffman of Berlin. It's not a rare cipher. I own a copy of the Muhammad It's not a rare cipher. <laughs> so Reb Meishan says, Eina seifah hazet tachachati. What Reb Meishan is saying is something much deeper. That his tradition of Paskin Halacha doesn't require him to go into all the Achronim. And the Rav was the same way. Once they went a certain way, like I showed you with Yom Tov Sheni Shel Goliath, once already you have uh, the Chacham Tzvi and it's overwhelming logic, you can't go against it. You can, you can suffer because of the Shulchan Aruch, because of the Afkat Rachel of the Shulchan Aruch, but you can't, you can't go against the logic. It's overwhelming. It cannot be refuted. And they didn't end up Achronim. See, it's a different approach. Uh, the the Ungarisha, if you're familiar with the Mintchat Yitzchak or rather Hungarian Polskim, they add up Achronim. Rabbi Vadya Yosef uh, adds up Achronim many times, many times. He adds up sometimes, if you know, he quotes from Hapades, this one, that one. Sometimes an American who knows those Rabbanim, not all those Rabbanim are on the level that uh, Rabbi Vadya should be quoting them with such seriousness. But that's a different approach. Rabbi, my Rebbe didn't have that approach. Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Chaim, Rabbi Chaim. Isaac Grzynski didn't have that approach. And the literature Polskim were different. Rabbi Schochanen didn't have that approach. They took a certain uh, stance and they went with it, but they didn't deal with all the Achronim. That's what I always say about Rabbi Heschel Shechta. My vote is very, very strong. That Rabbi Heschel called Svarim that the Rav never held. I understand it's a difference. The, the Rav used to boast that if not for his father, the Mintchat Yitzchak, Mintchat Chinuch would have never entered the Litvish Shuvayel. Mintchat Yitzchak, Mintchat Chinuch, pardon me, was, was a Galatiana. What does a Galatiana have to do with the Litvish world? Babur, was Galatiana upon him. But Rabbi Chaim Briska loved the Mintchat Chinuch so much that he took a study that safer. Once he studied that Sefer, it entered the literature world. So one second, let, let me make my point now. But I have to tell you this. As much as the Rav uh, wouldn't uh, deal or Rav Meisha, but there were certain Achronim that carried the day. In other words, certain Achronim, if I can go back, the Eskimalim, Kol Yisrael, to the Rav's Vat, and Torah Shabbat, to Akdom of the Rambam, to Mishnah Torah, certain Achronim, if I can paraphrase Rebbe, cannot be ignored. Among them was the Nodib Yehuda, among them was the Katam Sefer. Rav Meisha Sefer ready, Shich Molamal Mikolam. This, of course, was a focal pulsate. He was Zeicha. Rabbi Moshe Seifer was Zeicha. Rabbi Moshe Seifer, Shreiber, whatever name you know him by, Rabbi Moshe Seifer was Zeicha. And he already, all the Litvisha, you could not ignore the Chatam Sofa. The Rav, when the Rav was angry at Rabbi Rachman, if you recall his words, he says, what does he know more than the Nodabi Yehuda, more than Chatam Sofa? Notice the examples he picked. And as you'll see in Rabbi Moshe, he always deals with every Nodabi Yehuda, with every Chatam Sofa, these already were Paiskim, Gedoli, Gedoli, Israel. These were not Stamachrinim. 
These were Paiskim that entered already into the mainstream of the halachic tradition, and you had to deal with them. So now, let me quote, I'll show you the Khatam Sofer inside that Rabbi Tchokhanin quoted. David, what did you want to ask? Uh, David, uh, let's put it this way. The method of learning this litter, understand, the Volusian method of Chaim, Bris, they conquered the world. And they looked upon the Pailish Alamdonim and the Galatiana, particularly, they, it's pilpul, but it's not, it's not clarity, not incisiveness. What's amazing about the Mintchat Chinuch, it may be pilpul, but he is so incisive, so clear, so seminal, the Chidushim, in a Mintchat Chinuch, I can tell you what Rabbi Heshel Shev writes, and Nefesh Rav, you know, people even, even uh, last night, I was at a Sheva Brachas, people bothered me about the Nefesh Harav, is it true, isn't it? No, it's it's a, a, a lot of uh, flake, a, a lot of feedback, a lot of re- rebounds from, from Rabbi Heshel Sefer. But I can tell you what, Rabbi we were there. The Rav said Sheyurim on the Minchat Chinuch. I mean, we were there, it was my class. Who would ever dream? He took out a number of months and the text we used with the Mintrat Chinach, it was unbelievable. The Rav played, I used the word played, that's exactly the term, he enjoyed it. The, 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 the Chakira, the Mintrat Chinach is a fabulous sefer. You look into a mitzvah there, the Chakira here, there. What a mind, what a seminal mind. This is what the Prime loved. And he took a, a Galatiana Seifa. You don't yet know what a Galatiana, the Litvisha, the Pilisha. These were, these were different worlds. And he brought it into Brisk, into Lita. And the Rav loved the Minchat Chinech. It's true. The, what Litvisha Yeshiva doesn't have a Minchat Chinech, doesn't deal with Minchat Chinech. You go older. Anytime you want to say a pilpal on something, open up the Minchat Chinech, you, you, you have a world, a world, a world of Chakira. But the Chatam Sof, when it came to Psak, cannot be ignored. Even as much, I mean, by the way, the Ragged Shavar, if I have to be honest with you, that's why the Ragged Shavar's Psakim were never accepted. The great Rabbi Yosef Rosen, the Dvinska Gong, that was right near Riga, the Dvinska Rav, uh, the great Rabbi Yosef Rosen, his Psakim were never accepted Halachalamaisa. Do you know why, Ephraim? Why? Do you, have you ever held the Ragged Shavar? He never dealt with Achrayim. You understand? He paskined. From the Toysvet, uh, from the Rishonim, dealt slightly with the Shulchan Aruch, never went beyond. You understand? He never went beyond. All right, he felt himself big enough to walk with the Rishonim, but the Halacha, the Maisa, you can't accept such an approach. The Rav, Reb Maisha, the Litvisha, dealt with the main Achreinim, but they didn't go beyond. It's, 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 uh, it was a circumscribed ballpark, let me put it that way. So here, you look into the Chatam Sofer, Chelik Eben Ezra, Tshuva Nun Chet. And Tshuva Nun Chet, I'll just quote the question. It's, uh, again, one of these fascinating questions. Um, he says, your letter arrived on Simchas Taira. <laughs> in other words, the postman, the guy delivered it on Simchas Taira. So it's interesting that he should write this in the introduction to the letter. And he says, you told me the following story. He's writing to a Rav of a Kehillah, uh, and, he, and, and he tells him the following story, a man and a woman from his kehila were, were going on a bridge. And on this bridge, there were other people and many cattle. Look at the description, it's like fiddler on the roof. Men and women and carriages and many cattle. And while they were on this bridge, 
the man fell into the water and he was never seen again. Now the woman said, my husband has two scars on his body, two big red blotches. And she ex- told exactly where, one was near the ribs, one was near his ankle. And she also said that he carried with him the key to his skull around his neck. Again, see, it's a description of life. What was this guy doing? Why was he traveling with his wife? He's traveling to sell. It's like people coming on the airport. You ever see people come through customs? They have boxes of jewelry with them that are attached to them that thieves shouldn't rob them. It's locked with a chain, with a key, and it's literally attached to them. And they're allowed, by the way, they're allowed to bring that through customs. Uh, jewelry can go back and forth. Uh, one pe- people explain to me all the laws with that. So these people are traveling with schorah. His precious schorah is locked up in a cabinet. What does he have around his neck? The key to the cabinet. So she says, this is what he had on him. At the end of nine days, they found a body in the river about nine miles away, excuse me, about a mile away from where this person fell. But his body was so disfigured, it was impossible to recognize him. It's after three days. Remember what we spoke about? And here, he was hurt from the fall. His whole face was broken. Impossible to recognize him. But the blotches, the identity marks, were exactly where she described. The key around his neck to the box of treasures, exactly there. Wearing a pallet cotton with tzitzit, that was exactly the pallet cotton she described him as wearing. And of course, this was the question, can you permit this poor woman to remarry? And in the tshuva, he gets involved how the world has changed and he describes the post office, Bey Doa, it's an interesting expression, today we use the word Doa, but Bey Doa, the, the, the post office, and he says, even from the Turkish Empire, he's probably referring to Palestine, let us come to us in a very short time. I would imagine from Palestine, they were sending letters to Turkey to ask for money to support the Torah institutions. In other words, nothing has really changed in that respect. Jews living in Eretz Israel constantly have to raise money in Chutzlaretz. The Chida, the great Chida, was a Meshulach. He traveled all over Europe. People wonder, how did he get to Italy? How did he get there? He traveled all over Europe, raising money for Israel, for the Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. And that's wherever he went, he would look at manuscripts. That's how he was able to see all the Kitvayat, because he always knew, go went to libraries and try to find ancient manuscripts. So that's what I imagine these letters are, that these letters would arrive from Turkey to the Khatam Sofa, but he's Mitpael, he's Mishtomeim, that in a short time you can send the letter all over the world. And he says, if the man survived, he would have written his wife. And then he says, Magid Chadashat Shekorin Sighting. Anyone know what that means? Also, very interesting Hebrew. We don't have words yet. Magid Chadashot Shekorin Sighting. Newspapers. Sighting in Yiddish. The word for newspapers. Magid Chadashot. We call it an Eton today. You understand? He says we have newspapers. And, and today where you have newspapers, you're able to tell in the newspaper. You can publish an ad. I survived. I want my wife to know. It's very fascinating. You, know, you publish an ad. Anyone in this community. And he says... Once we have these factors, this helps us determine that the man is no longer alive. And this is one shuvah. 
has another tshuva. I'm quoting from Tshuva Samachei, Hatam Sofa. And here too he says, uh, I already spoke about in a previous tshuva that we have, we have mail today. And people, Afilu Besovki Vato Lom Yechol Adir Beveto Al Yedei Doa that you can be in one end of the world. See, his mishtomeim. Imagine a world like we have today where you pick up a telephone. It's an amazing world. To me, I'm overwhelmed. I, got, I once got a call. I was in Borough Park and I got a call. And the truth is, when I'm in Borough Park, I don't like anyone to know where I am because I'm under such pressure time-wise and people will start calling me. I, I can't get done what I have to do. So they tell me that, that they were told to call me. It's a child of Mamzeret. So I said, where are you calling? And they got my number from my daughter. It's Pikuach Nefesh. So where are you calling from? It sounds like your next door. They were calling me from Kiyarab. I couldn't believe how clear it was. I couldn't believe it. And now with the Israeli phone system, I call America. I say, where are you calling from? I say, Yudushalayim. They say, you sound like your next door. I say, you sound clearer than my calling. Buy it for gun. It's an amazing world today with, with, with all the faxes and the email. But nothing compares communication, mouth to mouth, voice to voice. And and he's mishtomeim. He says it takes such limited time. And then he says, "Ubefrat hai gavra." Listen to these words. The Ohavalek taught him im im ishto v'yachiv v'yeshet. And the word he uses im aviv v'yachiv v'yeshet nurav. You see, that's a catch word. Eshet nurav. The Gemara in Sanhedrin daf chav bet. Eshet nurim kiti maes. This is a whole kind of today. The world has gone crazy. I don't understand the world today. Men get married, the wife of their youth, they beat them, they kill them, they eat them up alive, they fight like cats and dogs. Students of mine, students of mine. I don't understand it. The world has gone crazy. But once, what is an Eshit? You should hear my shirm. I'll give an Eshit Nurim, that whole Gemara and Sanhedrin later this term in Midrash. What does it mean? What does it mean? Eshit Nurim? How can you, Eshit, can you be deceitful to the wife of your youth. And and this is what he says here. The man left. He's friendly with his father, his brothers, his wife of his youth. There's no reason he shouldn't contact him. And and he's and is something amazing. The man knows he fell into water. He knows that the word went out that he almost drowned, assuming he survived. Wouldn't he go out of his way to tell his family he knows that they're worried, that they're mitztarim, they're upset, they're worried. So a man, a normal man, if he would be alive, even if he's very far away from home now, and, and even if something happened along the way that he's embarrassed and he had to go far, whatever the reasons were, but he would go out of his way to inform them through the post office. And if so, if you wait the time that it would take the letter to come, that it would take the letter to reach, that's a vatzichro. That's exactly what the Khatam Sofa says. If letters travel from Alaska to Lithuania three days, uh, three weeks, excuse me, three months, and if you're maybe something happened that he went far away, whatever the reasons are, by now, he should have contacted home. Now, I want to make one more comment. I may be right, I may be wrong. But it's very interesting. The Khatam Sofi here says, maybe there are reasons why he was embarrassed. Something happened. He had to run away far. All right, he had to run far away. But nevertheless, a normal man should contact his family. Gentlemen, can anyone tell me what I believe the Khatam Sofi is referring to? 
What are you talking about? Mishum Kseifa, he ran away. It's not an open Gemara. It's an open, tremendous machloket in response literature. This is the Cleves get. This is the Cleves divorce. 1766. Tzachan Tamsof is writing a generation after this tremendous machloket that shook up all of East European Jewry, or all of Jewry, period. It was Western and East European. The whole world was one then. Right Right at the turn of the Enlightenment. But what happened in the Klebsket? Yitzchak. Yitzchak, what happened? Yitzchak uh, felt that the government was persecuting him. We don't know until today. Was he right? Was he wrong? Was this just a persecution complex? Was he schizophrenic? He felt the government was going to arrest him. And he ran away from Germany to England, to London. But he contacted his wife. He let her know he was alive. And that's what he may be referring to. That even it's a case like the Cleaver Get, where the man feels he has to run away. Something went wrong. Something terrible happened. The government is after him. He's being persecuted. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be thrown into jail. Whatever the reasons are. But he contacted his wife. So he says here, if he would have survived, no matter what the reason is, he wound up in Alaska. He wound up in Hawaii. Wherever he wound up. A normal man, and we know this man was happily married. He lived Bishalom Vishalva. Interesting, he mentions his father and his brother. In other words, at that time, we were more family-oriented. We were more interdependent. Generally, families worked in the same business together. It's like the Svadic world. We Ashkenazim have no concept of family today. The Svadic world retains the concept of Hamula. You go to Flatbush, and you'll see how families are interdependent. They work within the family. They, they, they store the business the, I, I know you'll take, for example, students of mine are an investment firm. Who works in the firm? There's the father, the patriarch. Under the father, you see three sons working along some outsiders. But the heart of the firm is the father and the three sons. And that, that's the way families were in Eastern Europe as well. In America already, it's a different story. Each one goes out on their own. I have friends that have tremendous businesses that have no one to turn the businesses over to because their children are not interested. The children are in this field, that field, doesn't matter. It's a multi, it's, it's a quarter of a billion dollar business. And I'm not exaggerating. Children are not interested. See, it's a different world. In a Svatic world, that can never happen. But those words of the Katam Sofa, his father, his brothers, the wife of his youth, they're fabulous words. So let me reiterate. You see, when you take a chiver part of Heim Salavechik, used to do this in, uh, on a graduate level in Hebrew University, he would take a chiver part, just like I'm doing. The only thing is, I claim schut vishonim. I was the first one ever to do it in modern times, as far as I know. No one ever did it before. And I already started this back in 1971. Baruch Hashem. I claim schut vishonim for all the good it'll do me. But there's so much in a chiver. It's so impregnated. There's so much here. There's so much life. There's so much background. There's so much we can learn. But that's the Khatam Sofa, and that's where Bishol Khan Inspector quotes. So if I can reiterate when Yabzal Khanan died, many Maspidim began their Hespit, Bachena Benot Yisrael, the way the Hespit for Shal Hamelech, daughters of Israel cry. That's the way they began their Hespit for Rabbi Yitzchel Khanan Spector. He not only was Matir, hundreds of Agunat, literally thousands of Agunat, because when you talk about ships sinking, who knows how many Agunat are involved? But he gave us the blueprint that ultimately, unfortunately, in the 20th century is going to be used thousands and tens of thousands of times over with the Holocaust, 
with the wars of Israel, with World War One, with planes crashing, boats sinking, etc. He gave us the blueprint and the heart of it you saw today. What began as a single incident with water sweeping away, with Rav Chaim with Rav Chaim with with the, the description there, the ice, the water, the trees. Later, he gets a question: Become a rabbanim, a boat on the way to America, which he ties into a tshuva with a boat going from London to Cape Town to Port Alexandria. Very fascinating. From Port Alexandria to Cape Town, very fascinating. And he calls the Khatam Sofa, and you see the Trey Rube come to life before your eyes. Okay? We haven't finished with Hanan, but I've given you insight and information and knowledge. Now, tomorrow I, I have to begin nine shop. David and Ephraim see that the boys are here. Now, why don't the boys, it's a call, they have no maturity. You don't know how to hold a rabbinate. I have a student who lost a big rabbinate. Because when he was my student in 1972, I would always refer to him as the late mister. He never came to class on time. He was habitually late. And I refer to him as the late, I don't use his last, he just lost the rabbinate. And I'm told one of the reasons was a funeral. Funerals had to be held up. He was late. Weddings had to be held up. The rabbi is late. Rebani Shalalem. Ephraim is writing on Torah and Madam Multorum Derecheretz. Take the punctiliousness out of Torah and and make it Masi. Now I have to tell you, tomorrow she is one of a kind. I come into the heart of the Rav's talk 77, although I have to say one Mary Dikvan, what you asked me after class last week with Talmud Torah for women, and I even have Rabbi Miller all excited. He wants to know, why do you have to say, Rabbi David asked me today about the, clou- clou- the clouds, that's Rabbi Yosef Klaus, the, the Rav. I said, David, I don't reveal anything in advance. Tomorrow, I will reveal it in Shia. The only problem is, he will appreciate what I'm saying. You fellas don't know the clouds anymore. Vayakum Dachadash. He was in the Kolil in 1981, 82, those years. Vayakum Dachadash. You don't appreciate that, what the clouds, but that story tomorrow is Meredith. Then I'm going to talk about the two editions of Rabchaim Salavechik, and I'm going to show you what the contemporary Rabchaim Salavechik did to show that truth should win out. I wouldn't miss tomorrow's shear for all the lumbers in the Yitzvah Khanan's trade bay. Gentlemen, until we meet again in health and happiness, Das Vidanya. Thank you very, very much.